I've got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, we're talking with Ashley Woodard Henderson, co-director of the Highlander Research and Education Center. We talked about like what it means to develop demands that are rooted in the Black radical tradition. We also meant that it can't do harm to any other community. We're not talking about giving us some and taking away from other, you know, targeted and marginalized communities. What we're saying is like, what's good for us will be good for everybody in the country. And on that note, what the folk? If you want a revolution, fuck shit up. Fuck shit up! If you want a revolution, fuck shit up. Fuck shit up! If you want a revolution, playing nice is no solution. If you want a revolution, fuck shit up. Fuck shit up! So here we are with the amazing Ashley Woodard Henderson, who is not only a good friend of mine, but also an incredible human. She's a 33-year-old Afro-Latin, black Appalachian, working-class woman, born and raised in Southeast Tennessee, the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee. She's served as the president of the Black Affairs Association at East Tennessee State University and the Rho Upsilon chapter of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. She's a longtime activist working around issues of mountaintop removal mining and environmental racism in central and southern Appalachia and has served on the National Council of the Student Environmental Action Coalition. She is an active participant in the Movement for Black Lives and is on the Governance Council of the Southern Movement Assembly. Hi, Ash. Hey. You know, uh, another day in the paradise that is the United States. Um, so super busy, but, you know, feeling, feeling really hopeful. Glad to be on with you. We're glad to have you. Yeah, so glad to have you. We're going to start in with just, you know, a couple easy questions about being anti-racist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. So the Highlander Center, many people don't know what it is or why it's such an epic place and why the work you're doing is so important. Do you think you could tell us something about that? Sure. I mean, I think people don't know about the Highlander Center because there's been a very intentional campaign by the state to make sure that people don't know about it. But if I was trying to sum it up really quickly, I would say that the Highlander Center is a school that's been bringing people together across all the many differences that communities might have to figure out how to change the material conditions of our people for the better since 1932. So we're almost 90 years young um, and we're still like doing that work. So it's an organization that is physically nestled in the foothills of the Smokies in East Tennessee. Uh, we were born uh, in Mont Eagle uh, in, in Tennessee um, we've been in Knoxville, um, and now we're in our current home where we've been for the longest amount of our 90, almost 90 years. We'll be 88 years young this year. And yeah, we bring people together to talk about like what transformative justice is and how to do it. We bring people together to talk about what's happening in their social movements. We're a catalyst to build those social movements up, and we give capacity to support them winning. We are experts in the methodologies of popular education, where everybody's a teacher, and everybody's a learner, but what makes Highlander really special in the 
sort of ecosystem of, of organizations and communities that think about pop-ed is that we don't just do pop-ed for pop-ed's sake. We don't think that just, you know, smarter people the world save. Um, so we believe in taking that new knowledge that could only exist through popular education containers, taking that knowledge back home to local communities that are the most directly impacted by systems of oppression that we wish to undo and, and, and to, to destroy um, so that they can actually do something to change those material conditions. Uh, language justice, participatory action research, cultural organizing, intergenerational organizing, so many others. But we, we believe that if social movements actually were experts in the doing of that, were excellent at doing that, that they would win. By net. It's like impossible not to win if you know how to do those things. So we help train people to do that. And then we're also just a place where people can come uh, for rest and respite that are being impacted by the blowback of being the leaders of these social movements. Um, it's places that people come to Highlander to, you know, have strategic conversations that they don't feel safe having anywhere else. So we're, we're dedicated to doing that, you know, for, for as long as we need to until our people are free. You've had some incredible people there for, for both rest and strategic conversations. So I don't want to, I don't want to, necessarily go down the, the you know superstar activist train but i think it's pretty pretty amazing the number of of, of well-known badasses who've been through there yeah i mean people usually start the sentence with isn't that the place where rosa parks trained before the montgomery bus boycott and the answer is <laughs> yes yes um, but that's not where the sentence ends, right? The sentence ends with Rosa Parks going on to be on our board of directors, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like the, I literally wouldn't be the first black woman executive director of the Highlander Center had it not been for some of the, the infrastructure that she fought for and supported, right? Um, mm-hmm. folks, you know, yeah, Martin Luther King came through. That is also true. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and Highlander go way back, right? Um, Miles Horton, who so many people, you know, love and respect, is a founder, Right. Um, and what's real is like activists and organizers of all stripes from literally every front line that I could think of, you know, every sector in social movements has come through Highlanders a degree of separation away uh, because Highlanders done such incredible work, not only domestically in the U.S., but also internationally. So, you know, I, I lovingly always tell people like we are we are Southern as Southern as Southern could be. We are Appalachian. Um, because we're from these mountains, but the the reality is that the impact of our work, um, even though our priority is the South, has national and international implications. And so we are, you know, we're good stewards of those relationships as well. So one thing I'd love to hear more about is the sort of popular education and participatory action research. So I work in higher ed, I'm an academic librarian, and I have a lot of criticisms of that kind of ivory tower expertise model that's resulted from higher ed. So I'm kind of curious what someone in my position should know about the education models of the Highlighter Research Center and how someone in my position could maybe support those models. And maybe if there's some examples of maybe some recent popular education and PAR projects. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes in Ivory Towers, it gets summed up as just like Socratic seminar is popular education. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm mm-hmm. just saying popular education is a particular methodology. Yeah. Right? Um, that is separate and distinct from from other tactical facilitative interventions, mm-hmm. right? Just because you sit in a circle does not make it popular education, right? <laughs> right? Just because you don't lecture, right, doesn't make it necessarily popular education. Mm-hmm. The, the, at least the way that the Highlander roots itself in the methodology again is that the people that are most directly impacted by the subject matter 
are the, the most likely to be experts in what the problem is, but even more importantly, are usually, if not always, the people that actually have the best solutions for how to fix the problem that they're living every day, right? And so popular education prioritizes those voices being not only in the room and at the table, but it's their convo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that we actually have a lot to learn from those folks and that what we have to share with them isn't to teach them stuff that like they don't have the capacity to understand. They, they innately have that. Mm-hmm. Our job is to make sure that they have all the institutional resources that are, that are available to us to, make that, to take that knowledge into action. Right. Um, so that that to me is what makes Highlander so special in this folk school movement is that we're not just creating better citizens or whatever. Like, you know, that's not our goal. We don't we would push back against even that articulation. What our goal is, is to make sure that the most directly impacted folks also have the resources to change their own material conditions. It's about self-determination. And that's that, that to me is the most critical aspect of popular education. And we mean that like in practice, not just in, in principle. And then I think, like, towards participatory action research, it's very similar, right? But it's, it's about who can develop that sort, of, that sort of research arm, right? Is it only people with academic experience? And our assessment is no, absolutely not. The grassroots organizations and communities actually have tons of information at their fingertips just through being in community with each other that if, if galvanized together, if synthesized together, could actually develop the strategies and tactical interventions organizing goals that could again change their material conditions right so uh, we've had participatory action research projects at highlanders longer than i've been alive right there have been projects around land liberation who owns the land where you live is it people that live and look like you or is it people that don't even live in your state right mm-hmm. um it, who who are those people and why why is it those people um, we've seen communities come together across geographic difference, across racial and nationality difference to, to use participatory action research to be able to galvanize their communities around political education interventions that moved organizing campaigns. Right. And I think we see, I think like, again, I, I think there's so many examples to be given because I think most of our folks that are, that are coming from, uh, marginalized communities actually have been doing this like innately forever it's not something it usually doesn't feel unfamiliar yeah it feels like stuff that people told us we couldn't do and it was usually to in service of keeping us from being in our fullest dignity and power so that's that's two of the methodologies that highlander really roots our work in those are are two really important points i think for me that stand out are a that what you're doing is trying to empower people to take action and not just have conversations but actually do something about these issues that they're being educated on but also the the fact that people from the most targeted communities which I've been recently retraining my brain to say targeted instead of marginalized you know these these are intentionally targeted communities and members of those communities are well aware of what's going on and and what kind of attacks are happening whereas m- many of us who uh who might not be you know I'm a, I'm a woman but I'm a white woman so I have I have you know the the filter of whiteness to look through and I haven't been as impacted or as targeted so when I see these issues you know 
initially I was shocked or I was just outraged. Whereas if you've been experiencing all of this stuff for your whole life, you don't actually have the privilege or luxury of outrage and you just have to be doing the work, like you said, innately. So that kind of leads me to my next question which is what are some of the most effective ways to do that work and do that action that you have experienced as a very long time and lifelong organizer? Yeah. So I think a, a couple of thoughts. One, can I cuss on this podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the way. We call it what the folk, but that's because there's already a what the fuck. To be my, my most honest and transparent self. I mean, I think shit is complicated, mm-hmm. right? Like there are all all sort. You know, I think Tony Morrison is how it came to me, but I think it actually might be a conversation that was started by people in the, on the continent of Africa that were saying that what white supremacy and capitalism, and I would say all the isms, right, mm-hmm. have done is literally dismembered people from each other, from from their old ways, from their their faith and spiritual practices from their ways of being in community like just ways of being right and practicing being human and good right together right it literally has dismembered those practices sometimes very literally right the dismembering of families right the dismembering of african people from their homeland to come to other places for the sake of building the economic backbone of this country right um, or contemporarily, right, like dismembering families, like children from their immigrant parents, right, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that, yes, they are targeted communities, and that is intentional marginalization of those people, right, on purpose, dismembering them. And that the work of organizers, activists, griots, like people of goodwill, what the folk work is, to me, is 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 remembering. It's So I don't know that we're empowering anybody They've got the power. It's again, it's at their fingertips, right? It's theirs. There's more of us than it is them, right? The people that would have it be any other way other than the beloved community, right? And so if that's the case, then all we have to do is remind people is to literally remember. Septima Clark would have said, weave the threads, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to remind folks, like, actually, this is this is yours, right? This is yours. And so we just create containers where people can get that remembering, where they can be reminded. And where they can start to practice it, right? Like I think that's that's something that people think about when they think about Highlanders trainings, where they actually saw people on our 186 acres, literally practicing the things that we were learning about, right? So I think that that for me, some of the most impactful ways that I'm seeing folks implement the work of of these methodologies is is I mean, it's ironic that it's happening in this moment. Is that folks are naming that we're seeing intersecting crises, right? And it's true that like people are coming to to it from different vantage points based on their own levels of privileges or disadvantages. But what we're seeing is a, a black-led, multiracial, multi-class uprising in the United States. And we're seeing solidarity efforts from countries all over the world, right? Just in thinking about what's happened in this country since George Floyd's murder, we've seen protests in every single state, like all 50, I would argue, 51 states, right? Um, at least 51 states, mm-hmm. right? And then what we've also seen is activism popping off in solidarity with our social movements in the U.S. in 18 different countries, right? All over the world, people are saying enough is enough. And so that's inspiring to me. And I think that what what gets to the nitty-gritty around what I'm seeing that is giving me this hope, this faith that we actually might have 
revolutionary change in this country in my lifetime is that it's it's multi-tactical interventions, right? There are folks that are just like, I'm going to get on every Zoom call I can to collect as much information as I can to share with my neighbors, to share with my faith community, to share with the folks that I go to the club with, whatever, right? There's folks that are actually like putting their own lives and their families' lives at risk by saying, I've got to be in the streets. They're using direct action. There's folks that are legislating, right? We've got like, for the first time, maybe in like a generation, we've got some lefties in in, in positions of, of, of elected power. Um, and they're actually using their positionality to support movement demands, right? We're seeing the development of policy demands, right? That literally are of and from the people, the vision for Black Lives, for example, the policy platform from the movement for Black Lives. What we're also seeing is folks that are like, I can't do nothing but give you $5, and that's what I got, right? And so I think we're seeing a moment where the majority of people are not getting into unnecessary quibbles with each other over which tactic is the most rad, and people are just like, yo, I'm trying to be all hands in, no sharp elbows, let's go, <laughs> right? Know your role and play it excellently. And I think that's what's sustaining this move, these social movements in this moment is that folks are working together where they have some expertise and, and really inviting everyone to be a part of movement right now. I think that any of our tactical interventions or methodological interventions in this moment, all of them really matter. But I think the, the key point of what makes this moment different to me is that people are demanding what they deserve, not what they would concede to, and are not falling victim uh, wholesale to the idea that like piecemeal platinum band-aids would be the solution. So when people said defund the police, they meant all kinds of police. They meant all the defunding, right? Mm-hmm. When they said like invest in black communities, they meant all black communities. But what they didn't mean was like give to the to the other systems that harm us just that aren't the cops, right? They meant like public education that was culturally competent, right? They meant social services that weren't ripping apart families, right? They meant social services that were actually helping to keep families together and to give them the resources that are necessary to develop healthy families. And when we said families, we didn't just mean nuclear ones, right? When we talked about investing in black communities, we meant all black communities. So that meant disabled folks. That meant folks with addiction. That meant queer, trans, intersexed folks, right? Like we're talking about all black people. And when we talked about like, what it means to, to develop demands that are, that are rooted in the Black radical tradition. We also meant that it can't do harm to any other community. We're not talking about giving us some and taking away from other, you know, targeted and marginalized communities. What we're saying is, like, what's good for us will be good for everybody in the country, right? Everybody. But what we're talking about is how, how it's disproportion- the lack of giving us these things is disproportionately impacting Black people in this country. And that's where, we're, that's where we're, our focus is but not in competition with any of our other communities that are also directly impacted by systems of oppression. So that's, you know, I think that, that folks clearly get that in this moment feels very different than like 2014 and 2012 and 2006 and 2004 and, you know, even the 90s and the 80s, right? I think that's what makes this moment feel different. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that what sucks about it is that it took this much cumulative black death to get people to this moment, right? It shouldn't have come at so high a cost. When we said Black Lives Matter in 2012, 2013, folks could have just believed us then, right? It shouldn't have required like a Trayvon and a Tamir Rice and a Mike Brown and a Sandra Bland and a Rakia Boyd, right? It shouldn't have required a George Floyd and a Tony Bacay and a Nina Pot, right? Like it shouldn't have required 
this much black death. And that's just the police violence side. I'm not even talking about the tens of thousands of black people that died at the intersection of police violence and COVID-19 or the number of people that have been locked away in cages who have never been convicted of a crime. And even if they had, didn't deserve a life sentence. You know, like this, this situation that this country is put in, targeted and marginalized communities in is, is immoral and criminal. And it shouldn't have required it to get to this level of toxicity for our allies. And, and I, when I say allies, I mean that broadly. I mean that for class privileged black people. Um, and I mean that for, for everybody else. Like it shouldn't have taken this much to get us to this moment. Um, and my hope is that we do that. We take this moment seriously so that we never have to do it again. That's definitely my hope as well. And I liked what you said about um, everybody kind of finding their role in the fight and due to all the different strategies, ways people can get involved instead of necessarily being like, this is the one right way to get involved. So um, I appreciate it. It seems like the Highlander does a lot of that work and bringing people in on different levels and helping people find their own power in the movement. Yeah, I think it's critical to think about it that way because, but, but I also think that the caveat is like, we also don't need replication of stuff that's already working, right? So it's like, it's like, yes, get in where you fit in and follow the leadership of black people who've been doing this work and, and doing it in relationship with grassroots communities and doing this work principally and consistently uh, for a very long time, right? So I'm not saying just go follow any random black person that tells you to do something. <laughs> I'm saying like, and like, check out the movement for black lives. Mm -hmm. See if there's a local organization that's connected to the movement for black lives where you live. If not, maybe ask some, some regular black people, like (laughs) you're in the streets. Do you happen to believe that all black lives matter? And if they say yes, then maybe get in and have a conversation with them, right. About where you might be able to to give them some capacity and support. Um, You know, I think that sometimes, sometimes when we say get in where, where you fit in, people just like, they flail like they fell asleep in class. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just start like getting into everything and that yeah. actually takes more capacity away from movement. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is know what you're good at, be clear about what you can contribute and then get in alignment with black people on the ground or regardless, you know, whatever the social movement is that, that is inspiring you in this moment, figure out who's already doing it because we are not the first, last or only ever to do this work and then flank and support and give capacity to that work very important. One thing you you mentioned a lot about capitalism, and I appreciate sort of centering, you know, the intersection between all these systems of oppression within capitalism. One project that was really interesting, looking up um, some of the projects the Highlighter Center has done, is the solidarity economy. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, and maybe kind of what that means and why it's important right now. Yeah, I mean, I think this this work is critical, right? It's 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 sexy right now to be like capitalism ain't shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, especially like when it's in crisis. But right. guess what? <laughs> Capitalism's always in crisis. It's always been in crisis. Mm-hmm. That will always be true. the The work of tearing that economic system apart and uprooting it so it can never go back again is critical and important. But what's also important is knowing what economy will replace it, right? Yeah. Or is currently a contender. Mm-hmm even cur- like right now, right? We don't have to wait for other economic systems to exist. They exist even in a capitalist state, right? So what part of what Highlander has been a part of is organizations like uh, uh, NEC, New Economy Coalition, and, and so many other grassroots organizations on the ground that have been thinking about what does it look like 
to build an economy that is good for, for our people and the planet, right? One that is not just extracting, 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 one that is not, uh, you know, putting profit over people, one that is making sure that everybody has what they need so no harm exists in the first place. And so we've been a part of some really incredible projects. When I first got to Highlander as a staff member, uh, the crew that was organizing around social solidarity economies was actually doing a project called Beautiful Solutions and was looking all over the globe for solutions that people were, were creating that were building the alternatives and practicing the alternatives. Um, and there's so many, so you can search it. It's really beautiful. It's a really cool project. Um, we're still currently doing work with uh, the New Economies Coalition. But I think the, the one of the most exciting things that I got to see was the development of a curriculum that's called Mapping Our Futures that's available online where any grassroots community person could pick it up, download it, take it to their community and have either like an hour long or a day long or a couple of day long sessions around mapping up, mapping out like what a future economy would look like where you are, right? There's really incredible work moving around participatory budgeting. And quite frankly, if the demand around defunding the police is actually going to be holistically successful, it's got to include this idea of building a new social solidarity economy where people are actually in control of their budgets, right? Whether it's a municipal budget, a state budget, or fighting federal for federal legislation that would ensure that the money that's coming from the, from the feds down is actually not going to policing, right? So the, the work around the social solidarity economy, um, I think, is rooted in our, our ideas about transformative justice, right? We're not trying to reform this. In fact, I personally believe that you can't reform it. It's working exactly as it was designed to, and there's no put, there's no amount of lipstick or, or platinum band-aids that we can put on it that'll make it good for all of us. Black people, queer people, trans people, disabled people, otherwise targeted and marginalized people will not be free under the system of capitalism, period, point blank, done and done, right? Experiment, but actually it failed for us, but success for the people that developed it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think what's what's real for me is that this this you don't get transformative justice in an economic way without thinking about what a reimagined economy looks like and the social solidarity economy work that's happening at Highlander is helping to develop that vision of like what happens to transition us to that? What are the examples where people are already doing that, right? Like our people have been developing underground economies bartering systems, all sorts of stuff for, for a very, very long time. Black people were doing cooperative movement work in the United States in the 20s and 30s, right? This is not, that, and that's not even new, right? Um, so I think that the, the, the reality for me is that if we're actually going to really build a holistic social movement that transforms the United States, we will not have completed our work unless we figured out this, these questions around building social solidarity economies. Yeah. We can tear down yeah. all day, but we got to build something too. Yeah, definitely. That is a recurring theme. And so many people I've spoken to recently, Crystal Tubles, who I actually had a chance to sit down with her, and she brought up the importance of vision and and a lot of what you're saying. You know, you can't really come up with a better system if you can't envision one. And uh and see it in your mind's eye and also see the ways that it's already manifesting, like you said. And in that vein, something we were talking about earlier, um, as far as being, being an ally to that work, I've, I've heard uh, some conversations recently around 
the idea of being an ally uh, compared to the idea of being an accomplice. And uh, I think these days, as as this work uh, has become so, you know, trendy, <laughs> um, there are a lot of people who you know, really want to be allies or claim allyship and, um, and don't know how to do it. And there are people who want to know what we're even talking about when we mention these terms. And maybe you can, uh, shed a little light. Yeah. Yeah, man. Okay. So this is what I think. One, I think that we can be practicing liberation right now, right? The only thing that keeps, I mean, there's so many, there's, of course, like no one's under the guise of believing that systemic oppression doesn't exist and that it needs to be getting gotten rid of so that we can live in our fullest humanity. And what's real is that like some of this stuff really just requires people to be brave and courageous and do the right thing regularly. It's, it's mm-hmm. not rocket science, right? It's like, <laughs> you want to be an anti-racist? Great. Don't be a racist. <laughs> Challenge racism when you see it. Done and done, Right. We'll still have to dismantle white supremacy, but at least we would be doing what we actually have the power to do right here, live and in living color. And quite frankly, how can I believe that you're actually going to do the work to dismantle white supremacy if you're not actively being an anti-racist, right? Just, it's really simple, right? Keep keep it simple. Mm -hmm. So what are the ways that we could be, I think like the cop out is being like, gosh, it's just so overwhelming. There's so many bad things. The system is just so big. How can I do it? It's like, well, just do it. Mm-hmm. You could be practicing liberation right now, right? We actively are engaging every day and practicing liberation, right? It's me checking my cisgendered privilege, right? And recognizing that if I'm not amplifying the, the, the things that are happening to my trans sisters and brothers and siblings, to my gender nonconforming family members and kin, then I'm actually complicit in the harm that's happening to them every day. Right? So I am practicing it as we dismantle this this like fucked up transphobic system, right? So it's like, what can I do from where I'm at? How can I how can I get involved in like learning from myself and not putting any more pressure on people that are most directly impacted to teach me, right? That's actually what practicing liberation in real time looks like now. And I would offer inevitably, even when we get to freedom, right? going to be your work to not be an asshole that's the word (laughs) right now second thing that i would say is like vision and dreaming is actually really important to talk about they're not they don't mean the same thing right a dream is like something that happens in my brain when i'm asleep or maybe if when i'm just not paying attention right it doesn't necessarily it's like inspiring it might be prophetic right whatever but it's it's not a plan right Right. Vision to me is like the next step on dream and dream. And I think what happens is that like people think, especially targeted and marginalized communities, like really I found in my facilitative work fall on one side of the sword or the other. Right. They're like dreaming is a luxury that I cannot afford. Right. Um, you know, that's, that's what people with privilege get to do. Right. And on the flip side, people are like, or all I'm going to do is spend all day dreaming all day ideating about vision, right? And I mm-hmm. think that what we, we know is like, one, you don't get to go, you can't achieve a goal that you can't envision and you can't sustain a movement in which people don't feel dreamy, right? Mm-hmm. People feel dreamy about defunding the cops because for the first time maybe in their whole lives, they're being asked to like actually have conversations about what they want, 
what they desire, what they deserve, right? How would you reimagine safety? If I asked you, if I asked your listeners and you all to close your eyes and tell me about a time that you felt safe, you tell me one of two things. You'd either tell me I've never felt safe and I could push you. I could be like, there's gotta be a moment, even if it was like over beers with your homies or whatever, that you felt safe in a moment, right? Mm-hmm. Or you would tell me all sorts of really, really beautiful things. And then when I asked you, was there a cop or a prison, a detention center or an ice guard, right? Like you would be like, no, mm-hmm. right? So it's the first time that people are actually getting to engage in what their dreams and their visions for their people are um, in a way that feels tangible and doable, right? Um, I shouldn't say it's the first time. I think some of us get the luxury of spending time in that space all the time. But I think for a lot of like really directly impacted people, it's the first time anybody's asked them what they want, you know, in a long time. So I just want to, I want to be real clear that I think that vision and dreaming work is critical to our, our liberation. And I think it can't be the only work that we do in this, especially in a moment like this. The ally, ally co-conspirator, all the other thousand words that people are throwing around about it. I, I feel like, um, I feel like the thing that really matters to me about it isn't necessarily the semantics of the difference. Like, yeah, of course I don't want to ally. I want somebody that's like at my shoulder, got my back watching, you know, watching ahead of me too. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I want somebody that'll be in the dirt with me when I tell them to be in the dirt. Right. Um, But what's also real is the thing that feels most important to me about allyship is that it's not something that that a person can self-identify as. Right. I can't say I'm an ally for some other community that I've never actually been engaged with. Right. You don't get to tell them that you're their ally. That would be like I I like metaphors and I particularly like metaphors about love because I think like everybody can like usually get it, you know. So I feel like calling yourself an ally would be like telling me that you're my girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, whoa, whoa, wait, did I consent to that? (laughs) <laughs> have you earned that position? Do, do I like you like that? Like, I don't even know. You know what I'm saying? Like, when people come up to me and they're like, yeah, like, I'm an ally for the Black community. I'm like, but who, who said? Right? <laughs> right? I feel that way about leaders, too. That word leader. It's like, who your people, though? Like, did they consent <laughs> to that? Like, I don't know you. I don't know you like that. So I think for for me, it's like, the question isn't about which of the terms is the Girl Scout badge you get because you did what you were supposed to do. The question to me is like, who are you accountable to? Did they consent to that relationship? And are you actually regularly and consistently in a trust building exercise with them that they would say you're that you're consistent about, right? So I think if you want to be an ally to to Southern people and you live outside the region, then I'm like, what Southerners are you are you following the leadership of, right? Who's training you? What are you learning? Or what are you supposed to be learning in this moment? If if you're saying you want to be an ally to black people, I'm like, okay, bet. Like, what are you doing to be on your own journey towards understanding white supremacy and to dismantle it? And how are you using your privilege in concert with a strategy that's black-led to fuck shit up right now, right? Are you a mm-hmm. member of an organization? <laughs> like, if not, should you be? You know, like, what are you, what is your <laughs> practice like, that's the thing to me about, like, whatever word you want to put in, if it's a co-conspirator or ally, whatever, I think the hierarchy to me isn't as important as the, the work 
And so the question to me is like, what is your practice and, and your praxis, right? What are you studying? What are you in study around? What are you learning? And then what are you doing based on that knowledge? And are you doing it in concert with black leadership that I actually respect or mar- otherwise marginalized and targeted leadership that I would, that I think is, is valuable. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the goal is that like everybody should want to be an ally to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it just feel it's it's a weird concept. I get where it came from, but I think in this moment again, it's like an all hands and no sharp elbows moment because we've got a lot of work to do to be able to land the victory in this moment. And I think that for me, it's like what I want people to do is be in solidarity with each other, and what I want that to look like is being like honest about where we have some privilege and where we have some disadvantages and should be taking lead. And I think that what that looks like is being an honest conversation and dialogue with each other about like, yo, like you're doing really incredible work. I want to throw down and support and flank that. Can you, I, I got some ideas about what I could do, but just want, can I share them with you? Or can you just tell me how you would like me to get in and fit in? Um, I think that would be supportive of you and, and approaching it like you're in a relate. Like I think the, the goal the underlying goal of allyship and the conversations around co-conspirators and whatever is actually about being in right relationship. And I think if we spent more time talking about the practice of being in right relationship and how to do it and how to, to fix it when you fuck it up, because you will inevitably fuck it up, that we would actually be getting a little further into praxis and a little less in the, the semantics about like, well, I'm an I, you're at an ally level, but I'm a co-conspirator. <laughs> I'm more red than you because I picked another title for myself. <laughs> you know? but, yeah, I, I, think, I think words matter, but I also think yeah. that, like, uh, my dad would say, we 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 major in the minor and flunk the major if we're not talking about practice more than you know labels. Yeah. Yes, I think that it's really easy to get caught up in thinking of these words as identities rather than actions. And I think when all the things that you're saying to me translate into you are what you do and, uh, and you don't get to decide what you are, but you do get to decide what you do. And we are all going to have you know, depending on our level of being targeted or not, we're all going to have hard decisions to make moving forward as far as how we act in the face of continued oppression and how we how we show up. So thank you for clarifying that. I, that's right. I mean, I think what, what people who say they're my allies do is like show up or like give me a, send me a text being like, we know you're working hard keep right on working hard (laughs) (laughs) or they like they heart a Facebook post or they read, you know, like they, they do those things. My co-conspirators like put skin in the game. You know what I mean? Like there are people who, even when they mess up, they're consistent about being accountable to it. They take, uh, they take ass whoopings for other people of privilege that mess up, even if it wasn't them. And they figure out ways to take the capacity off of marginalized and targeted communities to, to force those folks not to force, but to, to strongly encourage those folks to clean up the messes that they've made, right? They they do, again, it's like you said, they do the work. They make the sacrifices. They increase the capacity of other folks that have less privileges than them to actually lead and do this work successfully because they can, right? So I think, you know, 
it's like, sure, is there, do I think there's a fundamental difference between an ally and a co-conspirator? Based on how other people define it, sure. But the, the point to me, the more important point to me versus the label, like you were saying, is, is what, what are you dedicating your life to doing? And what's the timeline around that, you know? What I know for sure is that there's no such thing as neutrality, that that's a myth. Like, you can't be neutral. It doesn't exist. Miles, one of our founders, would say you can't be neutral on a moving train. The train is certainly moving in this moment. So it's like you either not only believe but practice Black Lives Mattering or you don't. And if you don't, then, like, you are also complicit in the harm that is happening to Black people. You either believe that trans people and gender nonconforming and intersex people and two-spirit people and queers and homosexuals, every kind of label you want to put on the LGBTQ plus community are people that are deserving of human rights, or you don't. You either practice that or you don't and are complicit, right? Like, there's no, you can't just be, like, on the fence in this moment. You're either doing the work to help bend the moral arc of the universe towards liberation or you're not. And, and my co-conspirators are actively, like, jumping on that moral arc to bend it towards, towards justice. I love that visual. Yeah. Oh, man. They are like, yeah. They're, they're setting the landscape to dance on the ruins of multinational corporations. Ooh, <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's all just soak in that vision for a minute. uh, We've talked a lot about visioning in the future, but whether it's talking about not reproducing the work people have done or even sort of the suppression of the history on the Highlander Center, one of the things I notice about this country, and I know some of it's by design and some of it's by willful ignorance, especially for people of privilege, is that we're very ahistorical. Even if Mm -hmm. you look at sort of like the people that act like nothing bad happened until we elected Donald Trump, like there's this very ahistorical kind of reality that Americans live in. And I the one thing I'm really interested in is like, how do we resist that? What do we do as individuals to try to push back on that and educate ourselves and realize like this work has been done. People are doing this work and there is a history that's been denied us or that we've purposely chosen to ignore. Yeah. Oh, I think that's such a good question. I mean, I think the first step is by assuming that if it's something that you don't know, that it's something that has happened. You just Mm -hmm. don't know, right? So instead of saying, like, for example, nobody is doing anti-voter suppression work in my community, or nobody has been doing Black Lives Matter work, or nobody is organizing workers, or nobody is doing anti-war work, or nobody is doing et cetera, et cetera. Instead of saying that, say... I'm curious if somebody's doing and the thing that insert thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to assume that you not knowing something does not mean it doesn't exist, right? That's what makes it a historic, right? So yeah, ask a question Mm -hmm. (laughs) is is step, step numero uno, right? (laughs) Um, And then I think the second thing is like to do the, do the work to find out yourself first before you make the accusation that something doesn't exist. Right. So you ask the question, maybe people are like, we don't know. Then like Google is your friend, like get on Google, Google search and see if anybody's talking about that. Right. Um, And if not, if you can't see if anybody's doing it locally, something will pop up nationally or internationally. Check in with those folks and see if there's anything moving where you are. Cause if there's not, this is, this is ultimately what I believe. I don't believe the systemic change happens or any radical, like, long-lasting holistic change happens because an individual had a good idea. 
right? Well, ha- not in a vacuum. It's it, social change. My theory of change is that social change doesn't happen because of individuals. Social change happens because of organization, right? And so the, 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 the quickest step to getting resolution around the thing that you feel passionate about is like seeing what organization is already talking about that that you might be able to throw down in. Because what's real is even if you could do it in, as an individual, I, I hear my, my sister and comrade Ada Smith in my head saying, I don't want to be alone in this work and I don't have to be. It is not sexy to do this work as an individual. It's just not. Like, I know that it looks like it comes with perks. And sometimes that's true, but what's real is like Nazis burned down my office in 2019 and it wasn't a good look, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, so many ways that the state and white nationalists and paramilitary forces and white supremacists in general, uh, you know, target people that believe in what we believe. Um, and so you want to have a crew. You want to have a crew. So I would say the first thing is to like not make an assumption that what you don't know doesn't exist. The second thing would be to like ask a question about where you might find out more information about where it does exist and, and who could tell you more information. You know, Google search, read some books, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then if it does, if it truly doesn't exist, which is very, very rare, help make it so, right? You don't have to criticize people for not getting it as quickly as you did. What you can do is create the ecosystem and the containers in which people could throw down with you because they probably were just assuming that it didn't exist like you were, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I think those are the the most concrete steps that I would take if I didn't know something. And and, and again, I n- never ever blame communities for that. You know, it's like it's not communities' fault that they don't know about Highlander. There's infinite amounts of work that Highlander should be resourced to do to make sure that pe- more people know about it, right? Uh, but what's real is there again. The state is very intentional about protecting itself, right? And what would happen if we all knew? that there was all this rad work happening everywhere that we could all get down with is that we would actually push back on the powers that be and they wouldn't be able to exist in the way that they sort of authoritarianly like push back on us. Right. Um, so it's, you know, I don't, I don't raise that as a criticism, even of people with privilege, um, the system is set up for you to not know that there's actually a long legacy of resistance that some of your people were even involved in. Right. It's like, it's not even just Highlander that we should be mad that y'all don't know about. If you don't know about John Brown, if you don't know about Ann Braden, right? If you don't know about like Pamela Jean McMichael um, and so many, many others, Maggie Martin or Emily, right? Like if, if you don't know about these people, uh, then we should be equally as pissed off. And I think that the work again is to do that remembering, is to tell the story and to amplify the people that are telling that story that are the most directly impacted by them. Because I think the other thing that happens, and this is, this is both a criticism of the state and a criticism of academia. And I say that as a person with a college degree is that we also then decide that all history is everybody's history, right? It's like literally the, the foundation of public history. Yeah. And so then people get to tell the story as they have, uh, have as they understand it based on their own purviews and levels of privilege and, and articulate it on behalf of the people that actually live the shit. Right. That happens with Highlander all the time. There's a thousand different people that have said a thousand different things about Highlander who've never been there and have never talked to anybody that's ever been there, right? Hmm. That's also true for the Black Liberation Movement of the 50s and 60s. That's definitely true of probably, arguably, every social movement, right? Is that there are people that then get inspired and they they, they and attempt to do the right thing and to tell the story actually perverted by, by taking power into their own hands and away from the people whose story it actually belongs to. So I think there's, like, some real intentionality around being inquisitive, not accusational. And I think there's some real importance of being intentional about 
creating space where you are for people that are the most directly impacted to tell their own stories. Um, I'll end it with a, a quote that my friend Ed Whitfield shared with me. Um, it's from a James Brown song uh, where he basically, James Brown basically says like, uh, I don't need you to like open the door for me, just crack it and I'll walk through myself. That's, that's essentially what folks of privilege that are coming into new knowledge around the radical legacies of, of our communities, of different you know, organizations and, and different you know, identities of people. That, that's, that's my two cents, is like figure out the way that you can start to learn more about what they've already been doing for generations, even if it's in a lull right now, and then do the work to make sure that those folks can tell their stories themselves. Mm. That is, I think, a really an important and a lost value in our U.S. culture, whatever, whatever our culture is. We don't really have one. I think that's part of the tragedy and part of the reason for so much depression and anxiety that we see. But um, just being able to not only... Uh, not only know that those stories are out there, but be able to access them and hear them and tell and add our, our own stories as part of what we're trying to do with this podcast. And I know a lot of other people who are. And in that, in that same sort of line of thought, you know, when we're talking about people who have been active and who've had these ideas and who've had all of this vision and have been doing the work for a long time. I know something that benefits me from hearing their stories and seeing them work is knowing it is possible to do this work sustainably for your entire life and to stay focused and to not burn out and to see it as a marathon um, that may not be completed by you. You might relay tag somebody else to keep going. And I know some people get really frustrated when they first join um, the movement, whether it's the the arm of resistance, that's the anti-militarism arm or the anti-racism arm or the uh, anti-xenophobia arm, because they're all this, they're all arms on the same body. We see people come in, get really excited, want to do everything, and then they burn out and they get depressed and they think everything is futile. I have definitely never been in that position. <laughs> um, so I guess I would say as someone who, who has been, you know, powering through pretty hard and has been putting so much of your heart and soul into this work and body, you know, mind, heart and body into this work for so long, what kind of insight could you offer to to people who maybe new or maybe not so new and are burning out or finding ways to keep their stamina up and keep their hope up. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think if anybody tells you they've got the, the perfect answer for this question, they're a liar. <laughs> um, what I can tell you is that I, I was born into a family of, of movement oriented people. You know, my mother is a black Panther party member. I, Dad is a black liberation theologian and is, is even before his calling to ministry was someone that was dedicated to building black communications infrastructure and part of the black arts movement. But even before them, you know, my grandparents, who would have never ne necessarily called themselves movement people, were people that were showing up to take care of people in their communities as people do, right? As folks do. And so, I, you know, I've, I've never seen them not do that. So I never understood movement work to be something that like 
was this thing that you did on the side. It was like, it's a, it's a lifestyle. I, I was raised to understand it as a lifestyle. So I, I think a couple of things when I hear burnout. One, I'm like, what kind of privileged shit is that? Right? Like, who gets to burn out? <laughs> um, and, like, that's not what we're trying to build. You know, I'm trying to win so we don't ever have to do this again, but I'm not trying to burn people out. You know, I think I think it's also being real about our expectations of how people should work versus, like, actually building community with people so that we can figure out how to sustain ourselves and, and do our best work. So to me, it's like, what, what did I see as a kid growing up watching movement people? What worked and what didn't work? What didn't work was, like, unhealthy people trying to lead movement work. And and I don't mean that in like a, a Western, like scientific way. I mean, like people literally were like the walking wounded ripping each other apart sometimes when really folks needed a doctor or some medicine. And I mean that in like all sense of the word, or they needed to take a nap and eat a Snickers bar, you know, whatever it was, it wasn't rooted in the, like the goal that we have to, practice liberation right now as we're building liberation uh, or building a world where everybody can be free, right? So that's the first thing I think. And then I think the second thing I would think is like, when I think about not giving from an empty cup, I think like the self-care and the community care stuff is really important. But I also think it's not everybody else's responsibility to keep me from burning out. I got to be honest about what my capacity is. I got to be honest about like, yo, I can, I can do this, but I can't do that. I can do this around this timeline, but I can't do that around this timeline. Right. Like, I, th- I think there's, I think there's some like getting out of responsibility free cards that come with being like, I'm burnt out and movement did it to me. Like, no, like movement isn't the container for all of your wellness. It's not, it's not. So I think we have to be real about what movement can and cannot do for people. What movement cannot do is heal mental health issues. What movement cannot do is heal you from the trauma that, like, you experience with your partner or your mama and daddy or your church, your synagogue, your mosque. What the movement cannot do is 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 heal you. But what movement can do is be a place where you might find healing as you're accountable to being transformed in the service of the work to liberate everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we were more, if we created spaces and practice as, as folks that are holding some leadership and some have some visibility and movement, if we practice vulnerability in that way, that like, I can't say yes to everything and that I do have to like sleep sometime and I have to like drink water every now and then I've got to eat a meal, right? Like if we actually were visibilizing uh, what that looks like in practice, I think it wouldn't be uh, so not sexy to people as they come into movement. So I do think that there's like some level of like take care of yourself and each other. There is some do no harm, right? And don't let your not being well cause harm in movement space and, and in building movement. But I also think there's some some real like accountability that we need to ask ourselves around like what are you willing to do for the sake of liberation in our lifetime? You know, is it a marathon? Yeah. Does it have to be? I'm not sure. You know, what I know is that there's some stuff that's got to get done right now <laughs> if we're going to have any hope at surviving for the next four years. And I know that that requires some of us to do a whole lot of work right now. Um, and so what does it look like for us to not create false dichotomies and, and binaries that we don't like around what's a sprint and what's a marathon? And then be honest as we start to become it, like come into movement 
uh, about whether or not we're a sprinter or a marathon runner because those muscles are not the same muscle. Uh, anybody that ran track or cross country would know this, right? The muscles that you develop when you're a marathon runner are not the same ones that you develop when you're a sprinter and vice versa. So what does it look like to actually be intentional about creating entry points for everybody so that if what you can do is 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 right here, that that is just as valuable of those of us that can do what's right here, but not having a set expectation that everybody has to work the same uh, and accomplish the same goals to be a part of this movement, I think is what's critical. So again, the three things that I would say is like, what is your real capacity, <laughs> right? And what do you need to do to be well enough to be at your fullest capacity? And are you willing to do those things for the sake of winning now, right? And over the long haul, I think if you, if we can't answer those questions honestly to ourselves and with each other, that burnout will will continue to be a thing. The last thing I would say again towards the point that I made earlier is just like I would really, really, really ask myself, what does burnout mean to me? And am I just tired, or am I? Are my feelings just hurt, or do these people in movement just get on my nerves? Right? Like what? I would be, I would say what I mean and mean what I say by burnout, because what I know is that my mother has been doing social justice work for longer than I've been alive. And she's never once said she was burnout. Mm-hmm. Right. So what, like, what am I saying when I use those words? And that's not to say she's always done it in ways that I find to be healthy. Right. I'm not, I'm not trying to articulate that she was perfect. Although, I mean, I think so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I also think I have elders that like, that did run themselves off the road in ways that were not helpful and continue to not be. Right. Um, so I'm not saying that burnout isn't a real thing. I think it could be, but I think that people use that word and they mean a whole lot of different things. And we need to be clear when we use that terminology that it actually is the extreme that, that we mean it to be right. Burnout should be like, like I literally cannot go on and we can't be running people that hard. That's not, that's not, that's not liberation. That's not practicing liberation. Um, but if it's just like, I'm uncomfortable or I'm tired or, you know, whatever, that's not burnout. So I think we got to mean what we say and say what we need to. I think that is part of, um, in my mind, part of the act of being an ally or an accomplice or a co-conspirator is being able to ask each other those questions. Like, when you say you're burnt out, what do you actually feel? What are you experiencing that's making you say that? Because, yeah, we're, as long as we're going to stay alive, we're going to have work to do in some way. And, and you know, many people for the sake of survival. So if we're struggling for each other's collective survival, that means being honest about our limitations and our experiences. Thank you for laying that out there so well. So I think this was fantastic. But if there's anything else you want to add, Ash, please do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think I said it right. It's like this is a this is our fifty year moment, like right now. You know, like like literally what we're doing now will set the tone for the long arc of what our you know great great grandchildren will be inheriting. Right now, it's right now, um, and there's so much to do, and there's so many bodies of work, and there's so many organizations and communities that are like literally putting it all on the line right now, and. It has made, it has shifted what was possible in like the span of like three weeks, y'all. Like, you know, there's been a call for Trump's resignation. There's been a call to defund the police. Um, and, and again, by all police, all police, like people are talking about abolition. You know, Fox News yeah. is supposed to rumor for Black Lives demands, right? Like, <laughs> as an attack, but still, you know, shit I've never thought <laughs> in my lifetime, right? So like the impossible has become possible in three weeks, Right. 
So imagine one what that means for what could be what could literally become we drove Trump into the bunker like twice three times over the last three weeks you know there's like a one percent chance that uh uh what's her name Ivanka we could just like roll up in the bunker be like dad we're rich enough (laughs) uh and and the poll 72 percent of black people that are registered voters in this country from my understanding have said that they believe that Trump should resign right that would have been like, people would have laughed us off the block a month ago if we had said that, right? The mm-hmm. impossible is becoming possible. So my question is like, based on your dreams and your vision, what do you deserve, <laughs> right? And what are you willing to do, regardless of your label, regardless of your gifts, to make that impossible thing possible right now? Because literally we could win. We're seeing mm-hmm. we're seeing the victories, right? Minneapolis is defunding their cops. LA is talking about defunding the police, right? Uh, you know, Oakland like, schools. You know what I'm saying? Oakland school. That's like a ten year campaign. These people have been fighting for that Huge. for a long time. Madison, Wisconsin just cut their cop contract, right? Shout out to Freedom Inc. So like, we're winning. We're winning. So what are you willing to do to prepare for those wins and to to make them possible in the near future? What policies will we fight for? Right? What protests will you go to to stop bad things from happening? What new things will you create? And by new, I mean like just like not existent in this moment, like not that they've never existed before. Right, right. And then I think the final thing that I would say is like, and what are you willing to do to support those of us that are literally on the front line and will continue to be as as we win and blowback comes? Right. Like what sacrifices are you willing to make to be on the right side? And by the right, I mean the left and correct side of history. (laughs) This is the moment to make that decision, because, again, there's no neutrality. So it's like, which side are you on and what are you willing to do to 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 show evidence in your practice that that's the side that you're on? Um, And, yeah, I, you know, just feel open and excited about. Uh, you know, folks continuing to be in conversation with Highlander and Movement for Black Lives and the Rising Majority and so many really incredible organizations that are open to answering your questions about how to plug in. Awesome. Thank you so much. You know, we're all lucky to be in the place that we are experiencing these these victories that are happening, like you said, and it's so important to to keep reminding ourselves of that, of all the winning, you know. I'm very glad that that those of us who are doing this work are on the same side with each other and like what you said and what many people say in this work is that it does benefit everyone even the people who think it's bullshit and think that it's not going to benefit them and think it's going to hurt them it's still going to help them and yeah so thank you for all of the wisdom and insight and sharing all your experience I, I hope we'll get to talk more about all the winning soon sure i'm excited to do it you know and i think mm-hmm. i think even for the folks that don't get it yet i can show them better than i can tell them right so like what does it look like to not concede them to the right you know i think that's the that's the work of our movements right now too is that so many of those people became people that don't believe in our vision because we didn't stay in relationships to organize them to it you know mm-hmm. so what does it look i think that's also the work of this moment is is to to show them that this side of history is actually where they want to be. Cause I think I have to believe, even if it's not my everyday work, that the vast majority of us innately believe in the right, in the, in the right thing, in the good thing, in the liberatory thing, 
for all people and that the only ways, again, that they would have gotten to that place is we conceded them. And again, these systems dismembered them from the ways that we would have all been in collective community, beloved community together. So I'm excited mm-hmm. about about winning that with y'all and, and, and again, dancing on the ruins. Yeah, remembering. Remembering. <laughs> Cheers to that. <laughs> Cheers. I'm joining you shortly. <laughs> I'm cheersing with water for the moment. I'm going to be cheersing with something a little more medicinal shortly. So, all right. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to put up a link to the Highlander Center uh, in the show notes, highlandercenter.org. And how are, is there any way that folks can get in touch with you that if they want to, or, you know, should they just shout into the breeze and you'll appear or <laughs> you can get my social media handles. Um, and you could put my Highlander email address, but to be honest, they're just going to get an auto reply right now um, that says, okay. if you're trying to schedule time with me, holler up a lot. But so, <laughs> send, them, send them my email address, but my social media handles are cool too. Okay. Um, and right. I've, got one, I've got one for Facebook, for Twitter, and for Instagram. Cool. cool. We'll put all that stuff up. We're doing a lot of movement. And comp- like I'm, 90% of my time is basically going to the movement for Black Lives right now. So yeah, you could also share the InfraBL website and that wouldn't be a problem. I'm also on the leadership team of the Movement for Black Lives. I was one of the people in the room when we founded it. So, um, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel out of pocket to share any InfraBL information too. Perfect. Great. We will. Awesome. I appreciate y'all so much. Appreciate you. Love you tons. Love you tons. I'll talk to you soon. conversation with Ash, I moved to Portland, Oregon, where federal forces, as we're calling them, or federal mercenaries had begun to really aggressively and violently crack down on Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, movement for Black Lives protesters. And uh, the following conversation with a little recap that Sarah and I had, especially in the context of this conversation with Ash, we thought it was really relevant to include it. So we're jumping in at the place where Sarah has just expressed that she's glad I'm okay after quite an eventful Saturday night in Portland dealing with the so-called Federal Protective Services, who are apparently the president's private hired police. They didn't seem to be anywhere in sight when there were armed men protesting in state capitals, but they seem to be all over the place now that there are unarmed people standing outside a courthouse demanding justice for the indiscriminate killing of black people in the streets by police officers. Go figure. I'm glad I'm okay.
I too. I also think that I was even less prepared than I thought I was for the degree of danger there was going to be. Yeah. So why don't we talk about that a little bit since it's very, very relevant to what Ash had to say. I would love to talk about the ways that the Highlander Center has been crucial in helping get people prepared for situations like this and the way that I brought into my experience that this wasn't a show I should be interested in running and that I should do a lot more listening than talking and you know that the best way to be helpful in this space was to be not only a participant but like an active observer at some point some of these cops and these people gotta turn they got like some of them have to if there's really good cops I want to believe that even just like a few of them have got to be like this is fucked but I don't know. I mean, I don't think that anybody who stays being a cop um, is necessarily thinking that uh, for very much longer. I think anyone who stays out in those squads and on those forces is doing so because they, I mean, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. I assume sometimes I'm like this eternal optimist that keeps thinking people may have these sort of spontaneous awakening moments, but I don't know. I guess I'm not good at understanding why people would choose to be on that side of history. So, you know, I would say coming from, you know, a former soldier perspective, um, I, I can relate to the idea of getting into it for a job for the money, um, for whatever benefits you think you can get. Um, I can see getting into it because you think you're going to change the system from the inside. I can see getting into it because you really, truly want to protect and serve. Um, you know, a lot of people in the military, even though they might not have joined for this reason, definitely were interested in serving their country and I think that cops may start out that way, too. But just like in the military, you know, even though I have friends who I know are good people who stayed in, after a while, you can't pretend you don't know what the institution's about. I think in the military, it's a little different because there are varying jobs that you can do. You know, if you're a medic in the military, you feel like you're doing good work. And you probably are, you know. Um, if you're... If you're any number of jobs, it's totally easy to feel like you're doing some kind of good work. Um, but for police, I can't really see how they can they could insulate themselves from what the institution is being used for, which is you know to intimidate and cause uh, chaos. Yeah, I mean, at this point, that's what they're doing. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's not to say that that didn't stop me from actually trying to engage with some of these people. Like, 
I know I said I was like mostly yelling at them and it, uh, that's how I started out you know like when I was still feeling like a rubber bullet in my ass and I was just like ow and I was feeling this you know situation on my collarbone from being shot there and feeling it on my leg from being shot there and on my wrist from being shot there there was like absolutely nothing I wanted to do other than like scream at, at all of them as they were chasing us down the road. <laughs> but it was one of those things where it was like, like I've, it's not that I have not known that the police will be violent and aggressive and shoot things at people. You know, one of my good friends was shot in the head with a similar projectile, um, a rubber beanbag uh, or a beanbag projectile um, in Occupy Oakland and it fractured his skull. Like. I know that they do these things and I know that, you know, they especially get away with it if you're not white. And, um, you know, it just drove home very, very clearly that this is not a game at all. Like, this is not the police just playing at their game, at their job. This is not... Um, oh, we're just going to let them protest and then we're going to disperse them and then we're all going home. Like, no, they stayed out all night. And, you know, it was still, they were still tear gassing at dawn and after dawn. And, you know, we were literally out in the street and the, one of the women leading was on the megaphone saying, you know, we're only out here because y'all are out here. Y'all could go inside and we'll leave. And they stayed out, and they stayed out, and I I left before they did. I don't know. I didn't want to be more of a hindrance than a help, and I felt like I needed to kind of go back and rest and regroup before I could go back out. But it's not a game. They're serious, and they don't give a shit, you know? They won't look at you in the eyes. They won't respond, you know? If you were out during Occupy and saw how they acted then, you know, imagine that those aggressive forces during Occupy had had Trump as a president and had known beyond a shadow of a doubt that they would not be prosecuted for a single thing they did. That's the things people, people are like, oh, well, they can't do this. We have the right to protest. And all I'm going to say is we might have the right to protest, but we don't have the right to protest unless we're out there in numbers. They're really not fucking around. The leaf blowers were crucial. Yeah, I've seen videos of the leaf blowers. Yeah, it seems like definitely being prepared with certain supplies, and I'm sure there's good resources online for like what you should, mm -hmm. what supplies you should bring to protect yourself, especially if you're gonna do a night shift. Depending on, on the roles that you're playing, there are different ways to be prepared, and it is really at this point, you know, there is still the option of running away and not being hit by anything. You know, you leave early enough, stay far enough back. The further up front you want to be and the more involved and the longer you're staying out, the greater the chances are that you'll need like a proper respirator mask, some kind of good eyewear that seals off a helmet. I saw a lot of people with knee and elbow pads. I feel like any kind of padding or layers is good. You know, I thought my ass had enough padding. Apparently not. <laughs> there were people making shields, you know, people come out and shield with shields and umbrellas. 
a leaf blower if you want to be in that capacity. Like, I, you know, I think there are a lot more roles than I'm even aware of. Yeah, and I've been thinking a lot about roles because, and I know I'm not the only one in this situation, my husband is in the high-risk group for COVID, and, you know, we've tried to do what we can and even gone down to Denver, but we have to kind of stay away from the crowd. We have to be, like, careful until this pandemic's more under control, you know, like he's at a really high risk for if he gets COVID not making it because he's a kidney transplant recipient. So trying to think of like, what do you do? And like, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of waves and how there's this going to be a long fight. And it's part of what I feel like, at least my role is right now, is like, I'm going to be in training for either second wave, third wave, fourth wave, fifth wave. And I think that that's, you know, preparing myself by seeing what's happening on the streets right now, kind of, you know, self-education, self-examination, you can always donate to bail funds, donate to, you know, moving for black lives. You know, there's important work to be done just working on our own consciousness right now, because so much of what has gone down in this country is because of the suppression of our consciousness and the suppression of our, like, you know, empathy yeah. for other human beings. So anything you can do to work on that front, I think, is still valuable work, even if for whatever reason you can't be out in the streets right now. Although I think if you can, this is fucking important time to go out there. But I also think if you can't, yeah. there's training for the long haul on both sort of a personal consciousness level, as well as like a, you know, just physically preparing yourself and mentally preparing yourself to go out there so I completely agree there are so many ways to be involved and many of them don't require being physically out in the streets I think anyone who can I would highly advise finding a way to do it even if it's just once a week mm -hmm. going out and being present I mean, if you have a group of 14 friends, you know, because mm -hmm. I think everyone should have a buddy um, yeah. when they go to any of these things, highly advise, have a buddy. I mean, you can always make a friend, but you don't ever want to be relying on someone you just met if you can help it. So, you know, we are all in this together, but not everybody has the capacity to just take on a, a stranger Mm -hmm. uh, I would say if you have four, you know, a group of 14 people and two people can go down every night of the week or once, a, you know, one night, of, you know, have, have shifts, have rotating shifts mm -hmm. who can go down once a week. Um, or, you know, depending on what your capacity is, like care packages for people, mm -hmm. like masks and gloves and leaf blowers and food and water, medical supplies. You know, it, it's not in the whole city of Portland, of course, but the areas where this stuff is happening, it really does remind me of a combat zone. It's not just a random group of people. It's a well-organized group that has a lot of infrastructure and supplies and organization uh, and I think that we're going to be seeing that as the case in most places because people communicate. Yeah. So being a part of the communication thread, you mm -hmm. know, being a message bringer, being a uh, truth seeker, being somebody who just like does nothing but tweet other people's stories all day long to every news outlet and every congressperson, you know, there are so many ways to be involved. 
Yeah. I, I do really think that everyone who physically can should spend some time in the streets closest to them. And I say that as, you know, I wouldn't have just come here if I was living somewhere else. I would go to the place that was closest to me. Yeah. And I think everyone should do that right now. This is a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Longmont had a couple or at least one protest this weekend. Denver has obviously been popping off with stuff. Yeah, there has been stuff happening across the Front Range where I'm based. I think even sharing information about that. One thing that I took away from Ash that was really good was get in where you fit in. And I feel like that's kind of what we've been talking about just now. Is kind exactly. of think about what your strengths are and what you could do to help support this movement. Are you a healer? Are you someone who's here to help build what comes next? Are you a tear it down? Is that your energy? Like, what is your energy? What can you bring to this fight that's sustainable in the long run for you as well as for the movement? You know, I think that there's a lot of different waves of people that are going to be coming in because the old world's not just going to roll over nicely. <laughs> but then we're also going to need to build, clearly. So Exactly. And, you know, I've always appreciated about Ash and something that she touched on quite a bit is just that this work has been happening. Yes. It's not new. It's been happening in Black communities for hundreds of years and it's going to continue happening now. And one way that we can learn is in the area of sustainability, uh, in the area of keep on going. I think many of us who haven't been involved in the movement for anywhere near as long really like to see quick change mm -hmm. and quick action and quick results. And uh, something that really was uh, that I felt like I was able to internalize during my training at the Highlander Center had to do with the fact that this is the long haul and we, we, we can't be focused on what's sexy and, and slick and, you know, trendy. We need to be focused on continuing to work and having it not be glamorous and not be fun mm -hmm. and be actually really, really draining. But the reward we get is in working together for the good of everyone and lifting each other up. And like you said, working together to vision that new world. Yeah. And I like that Ash talked about that, you know, that we need to vision about what we'll be doing when we're dancing on the ruins of capitalism, I think is what she said, which was great. I really enjoyed that vision because I think one thing mm -hmm. capitalism does is it makes us feel really small and worthless and like we only matter for our productivity. Whereas thinking about, you know, again, I keep coming back to the idea of like people finding their own strengths, finding the things that make their hearts sing, finding what they can do to bring not only to the movement, but to what comes after the movement. And I think that it's in a way exactly. an exciting opportunity because we've been told so often we have to squash everything that makes us happy as, you know, unique human individuals and the passions that we have yeah. and the skills that we have, especially if they don't fit into the little capitalist square box. Not saying that if you're not a genius for business, there isn't a place for you in the movement, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I think there's a lot of opportunities, especially if you're called to healing work, if you're called to consciousness work, be in training right now. 
because like you are needed if not now soon that is all i would say to all my like peeps out there that identify as consciousness light worker peeps fucking be in training right now right (laughs) exactly like this is basically what burning man was getting you ready for Mm -hmm. you know this if that's the reference you need this Mm -hmm. is it that that new future city that you've been building in the desert every year it's time to build it in your communities mm-hmm. um if you know in the best ways that you can and also the other thing i love about that about that statement about dancing on the ashes of capitalism is that it really reminds me that this work isn't sad it's joyful it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. so exciting to be doing it. Like we are actively working to bring in the new world, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the new way forward that is going to be sustainable and it will rise and it's going to be fucking amazing. And we will have the dance parties while we are crashing through the, the toxic patriarchal fascist systems that are trying to crush us. Yes. It's all the same. One yeah. of the most powerful moments I felt at, on Saturday night, maybe five in the morning, we had been, you know, essentially chased around the city by, um, by these federal mercenaries, you know, they're chasing us around the city. Oh, they call themselves the Federal Protective Services, which is so Orwellian. I'm just going to say that yeah. it almost like defies Orwell. He, he's like, I couldn't have even actually, I couldn't have, you know. Orwell's um, like, I seed to the floor. <laughs> I see the reality. But the most powerful part was we got back to the courthouse and, and the woman on the megaphone whose name I didn't get, it's just she started singing. And, uh, you know, this is... This isn't like a rally with like thousands and thousands of people where everyone's all stoked to sing together. This is a group of, you know, maybe, I don't know, a hundred maybe people still out. People are exhausted. People are hurting. People are sweaty and stinky and full of gas in their face. And, you know, she's singing. A few people are singing along. A few people are dancing. And that's what it is. It's like, we dance as we go. <laughs> you know, we don't wait for the ashes to be completely settled. We dance as they're falling. And sometimes mm. the ashes falling takes the shape of people still being the fuck out at six in the morning, standing in front of a line of armed assholes saying, like, what do you got now? Here we are. Yeah. You know, like that's celebration to me. Yeah. I feel like that's a good place to end it. Maybe throw in the Emma Goldman <laughs> quote, my girl Emma. Like, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Well, we are dancing, motherfuckers. Exactly. We're dancing. When the Nazis start to yell, punch their face. When the Nazis start to yell, punch their face. Punch their face. When the Nazis start to yell, there's just one answer I can tell. When the Nazis start to yell, punch their face. Punch their face. Exactly. When the fascists give an order, disobey. Disobey. When the fascists give an order, disobey. When the fascists give an order, like to cage kids.
Yeah. 